Well, we are uh, in the Gospel of John, where we've been in the last few weeks in, in something called the, the theologians called Jesus' high priestly prayer, because it's a, a picture, which it's a it's relaying to us a real conversation between the Father and the Son, how the Son, how Jesus is actually and really and truly interceding for us to the Father on our behalf. And um, today we're going to close that out. This is the last part of Jesus' last prayer, his last uh, conversation between him and the Father. And this is the last thing we're gonna, that he's going to say to his disciples before he's arrested. And, uh, you know, sometimes maybe you've seen the idea of, um, or you've seen someone who's made a, a video as, a, as a, uh, a way of presenting their will and last will and testament to, some, to their family. So in other words, somebody makes a video, they die, and then the family comes together and they see the video, this message from their dead friends speaking about them and telling them about their inheritance and their blessing. And uh, as we read through the high priestly prayer, when we come to this part, we see that that's basically what's just happened. We see that Jesus has left a message in the middle of it specifically for us. He is praying not just for his disciples in, in and at the Last Supper, but he, in this part of the prayer, he focuses on us and prays for all of those people that will believe in him. And so can I ask you to please stand if you are able? Uh, further out of respect for the reading of God's word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word. This is John chapter 17, verse 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they also, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the beauty in it as always, Lord. We pray, uh, Lord, as we study your word together tonight, we pray that you would impress upon our minds how much you love us and that we would leave here today literally awestruck at not only how much you love us, uh, but how, how long you've loved us and what that love means for us in our future, Lord. So we thank you. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Mm-hmm. 
we believe uh, in affirming the ancient creeds of the faith. Sometimes, if, you, if you're here on the first Sunday of the month, you'll hear us, we'll all recite together the Nicene Creed, this dusty old document from the first centuries of the church. And we do that because we believe that uh, the creeds are, are the living faith of the dead. Some people say that, you know, to do that is just traditionalism, but there's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, whereas tradition is the living faith of the dead. And so we recite these old creeds because it connects us. It connects us with all of the saints who have ever lived, those who are dead in heaven right now and those who are still living now and those who are yet to live. And that idea or that, that belief that we as the church or all, all believers are connected together is called a doctrine called communion of saints. And when we, when we affirm these creeds, like so when we affirm, when we say the Nicene Creed, there's a part in it when we say the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, meaning that the church, we believe that the church, the true church of Christ, is unified. When we say the Apostles' Creed, um, we say that we believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. And so what we're affirming in there is that when we say these things, we are saying we believe and we affirm that the church is united, the church is one, and that we are united with all of our people, those who are on earth and also those who have gone before us to heaven. And so when we say that, then our friends in the Roman church look at us and go, come on, bro, (laughs) how can you say that? How can you say the church is one when there's thousands and thousands of Protestant denominational splits and continuing church splits and new denominations and just the church, the Protestant church is just fracturing before our eyes. How can you possibly say that you believe in the unity of the church? So what do we say to that? How can we, how can we affirm those creeds? What do we, what do we say to that, to that allegation? And the first thing I think we should say Considering the log in our eye principle, the very first thing we should say is, yeah, there's some truth to that. There's a, there's a sense where the church, our, the Protestant church, is splitting apart and fracturing because of sin, because of our fear of one another, because of our, our just sin in the church. And on top of that, the attack of Satan taking advantage of our sin shattering us apart. It's not as bad as people want to say. They say, you know, they'll say there's 30,000 Christian denominations. Well, not really. Probably a better way to look at it is that there's 21 distinct streams of church authority. If you look at it fairly, we would say. Um, But it's true. The church is splintering. One of the things, one of the right things that the Roman church told Martin Luther when he broke was basically they said, hey, Martin, if you do this, you're going to open it up for any Yahoo to go to an old 7-Eleven and start a church and teach whatever kind of heresy he wants. And in fact, that has turned out to be true. So, uh, and it's not just 7-Eleven. Sometimes it's industrial parks. Sometimes it's stadiums. And so we need to admit that there is, uh, there is sin and there is fracturing that is, that is, that is wrong. Um, but we also would have to say that it's not our problem alone. The same people who say that there's 21 streams of authority in the Protestant church 
or stream or different denominational ecclesiastical bodies also say that in the Roman church there's 16 distinct ecclesiastical bodies. There's a huge range of spectrum in what people actually believe in the Catholic church. Uh, they have political unity. But if you took someone like the conservative Cardinal uh, Avery Dulles, who is a conservative cardinal, or former, the former Pope, or Joseph Ratzinger, and you put him next to a liberal Catholic theologian like Karl Rahner, or worse, the pantheist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, or Mary Daly, who basically taught feminist witchcraft at the Catholic Boston College for decades, you will see there's this crazy spread of belief. There's the, there's the catechism that's supposed to unify, but what people actually believe is all across the board. And so, so here's the big question, seeing that all, those, that, all that is true, does that mean that, this, that Jesus, his prayer failed? Because really, any way you slice it, no matter which way you slice it up, by any account, the church has, has been divided by at least three ways. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. And so is that evidence that Jesus' prayer has failed? That's the big question we need to ask. And I think we're going to answer that today. I'm going to try and answer that today. I think Jesus answers that for us. The answer is that there are other forms of unity. There are better, more biblical ideas of unity. And if we consider those we see that Jesus' prayer was, in fact, answered. And keeping, so keeping in line with the main theme of this prayer, which is glory, uh, we see that we are united by the glory of God who is living in us, who is working through us, and who is promising to bring us home. And that's the big idea. That's the thesis of this passage is that we are united by the glory of God who is living in us, who is working through us, and who is promising to bring us home. Now let's break that down one piece at a time. First, we are united by the glory of God who is living in us. Look at verse 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The first form of unity that Jesus prays for is that we would be united by the indwelling presence of God. Uh, John has been, in the Gospel of John one of the big themes in John's gospel has been that Jesus is the new temple. The reason he clears out all the money changers and the animals in the beginning of John's gospel is to present that idea that the temple in the Old Testament was symbolic of the dwelling place of God. But now in the new covenant, Jesus is presented as the place where God dwells bodily. And in the midst of that, the gospel is calling our attention to the whole unified storyline of the Bible from beginning to end, where we see the presence of God moving from where we see it in, on Mount Sinai. The presence of God descends in fire and smoke upon the top of the mountain in the terror of the law and speaks. God speaks audibly to the Israelites. 
to at which point they all faceplant, <laughs> terrified. So scared, they go to Moses and they say, do not ever let that happen again because we will die. <laughs> Terrifying. God's presence coming in, in law and in judgment. And so then we see the presence move. Moses gets the instructions for the tabernacle and as the Israelites are in the wilderness, the presence of God comes to the tent of meeting and Moses, as the mediator between God and God's people, is, is with God, it says, face to face in this temple. So the presence of God has come closer. Uh, in the promised land, the presence of God is in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Now only the high priest can approach it once a year. And in the new covenant, as I just said, Jesus is presented as the place where God dwells bodily, the new dwelling place of God. And then at Pentecost, we see that the Father is united with the Son through the Spirit, and then the Spirit is released to the whole church so that we are all unified and connected together by this Spirit power. And that is what God, that's what Jesus is praying when he presents this when he's praying that we would be one, that, that Jesus is connected to God by the Spirit, we are connected to Jesus by the Spirit, and so by it we are all connected together spiritually. And so we are, what that means is uh, that we are collectively, we are collectively the temple of God, that God is dwelling in the earth in us and in and through us. It's this verse in Peter. Peter says that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a, the imagery is that we are all a block, a stone, a giant stone, and these stones are being fashioned together to form a temple and that God is living in and through each one of us and that we are, through that, all of us, at the deepest possible level, we are one. We are connected. Not by our political alliances, not by what we can manifest by politics in the earth, but we are connected by this even greater force, the greatest force in the universe. Um, you know, we talked about this a little bit a while ago, and, we, and I, you know, I said that blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. I think it's a great way to put it. And we all know that family, uh, bonds between family are very strong, stronger than most times in friendships. You know, friends can become like family, but what the Bible is telling us is that there's an even thicker bond, and that is spirit, that we are connected by that. You can't see it, right? We can't see it. But sometimes you can run into it. Have you ever like run into somebody and you're talking with them and you're just connected and then you find all of a sudden, you find out they're a Christian and you're like best friends? You get on the airplane, you sit down to somebody, you start talking, you find out you're both Christians. By the end of the flight, you're like two introverts even, are like totally best friends. One of our, one of our friends, Lillian Arjona, was, uh, went to Barcelona as a nanny. She met, met somebody on the beach. They started like hanging out, totally hitting it off. And then they find out, oh, they're both from, you know, they're both from the U.S. They're both from California. They're both from San Diego. Oh, they're both pastor's kids. <laughs> Their dads know each other. They're both in the same denomination. They just like totally like hooked up because 
there's just that sense of when you meet someone else who possesses the Spirit of God, and you do too, there is a connection, and you can feel it. That's legit. It's real. It doesn't... uh, It doesn't excuse us, though, from trying to, to still striving to work against our own sin and the power of Satan uh, and the call to love one another just as Christ has loved us. And so that brings us to second point, which is we are united by the glory of God who is working through us. So point one, we are united by the glory of God who is living in us. And now point two, we're united by the glory of God who is working through us. Look at uh, verse 22, 23. Now the glory of God that you, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's not miss the magnitude of what Jesus just said. When I read through this first time, I was like, stop, and like read it through a couple of times. He is saying that the same glory that the Father has given to him, Jesus has given to us. What could that possibly mean? Because Jesus is... uh, completely glorified. Now, there's a, there's a sense, we all know biblically, in which we will be glorified. And we look forward to that. I don't feel... When I woke up this morning, I did not feel glorified. Anybody else feel glorified this morning when you got out of bed? Typically, I do not feel glorified when I get up out of bed. <laughs> There's a, there's a sense in the future, so we look forward to that. We say there's going to be a time in the future when God is going to cleanse us in such a way that we will be perfect, in our, we'll be morally perfect, that we, won't even, we will not even be tempted or able to be tempted by sin, that we will be able to love each other and love God just as easy as it is for us to sin now. And that is a beautiful thought, but it's future, Right? So what's he talking about? This is, we know it's not that because he's talking, this is present. He's talking about now the results of this glory that God is giving us, that Jesus is giving us, will be the thing that compels the world to acknowledge that Jesus was in fact sent by the Father on the divine mission. So it has to be something about now. Uh, So what is he talking about? Well, let's remember. Remember our working definition of glory. Working definition of glory that we've seen in the Gospel of John is a visible manifestation of of divine majesty through acts of power. And we know also that the the disciples wrote about seeing the glory of Christ in, in this life while he was in the flesh And that glory was in how he was sent by God, equipped, outfitted by the Father on his mission to the world to bring the gospel to the world. And and that's really the sense that is being used here. The big clue for us is that there's a handoff. Up to this point, the handoff is this. 
Up to this point, we've been talking about God's word, God's word, God's word. And now he says, he prays for the people who will come to believe through their word, through the apostles' word. So putting all this together, what does this mean? It means that the glory that Christ is giving us in this particular section is the glory of the ministry of reconciliation. It's the glory of being gospel ambassadors, of taking up from where Jesus left off as his church in the world, bringing the gospel message to the earth in our mission that God has given us. That's the glory that they're talking about here. We know that to be true because it's the thing that's going to compel the world to believe that Jesus was, in fact, divine, sent on mission into the world from God. Now, so what does that mean? What that means for us is that being unified in our message and our mission is way more important than any political affiliation or political unity we might get or have. In other words, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe to be true, what we believe the gospel is, what we believe the Bible teaches, and being faithful in our mission to carry that to the world is a way more important unifying thing, is a way more important unity than any political alliance within a church. And, and, and when we look at the church, when we look at the Protestant church, especially at the time of the Reformation, we can see that that's really true there was a very small amount of difference on belief when you look at the four big confessions that were produced in the time of the Reformation. There was very little difference between the Lutheran Confession, the Reformed Confession, the Anglican Confession, the London Baptist Confession. Super similar. Believing the, the cardinal doctrines of the faith uh, were believed. The things that we disagreed on, secondary issues. And that's still, there's a lot of truth to that today. I mean, we disagree on, oh, when does Jesus come back? How has Jesus come back? Was the millennium now? Is it later? Is it a thousand years? Is it not a thousand years? Okay, we can argue about all that. But does that mean that we're not unified when we believe that Jesus is the only Savior of the world, that the gospel message of his dying for our sins, that we are saved by grace, that we are saved by our belief in Jesus as the Savior of the world, and that we are carry that message out? That's unity. That's unity. Even if churches, other churches disagree with us a little bit here and there on other things. And so, listen, here's the big app for us. The big application for us. It's going to sting a little, okay? Let me warn you up front. Uh, the big app for us is don't talk smack about other churches, Let's not talk smack about other churches. True story. In our fellowship meal. (laughs) In our fellowship meal that we have at the beginning of the month next door, some people from our church were talking smack about a particular brand of churches, not even knowing that they were sitting right next to members of that church. And it got back to me. I wanted to literally curl up into a ball on the ground and just cry. Oh! Maybe, maybe when you hear somebody say something that's not absolutely 
theologically precise. Just a suggestion. (laughs) Maybe we could not jump on them like a bunch of monkeys on a football right away and start pummeling them with proper correct theology and instead, mental note, and continue the friendship. Build the relationship and get a chance to where you're able to earn the right to speak to them about what we believe and why we believe it. Trust me, that's a better way to go about doing things. And so, what this means is that uh, glory that we're called into includes the ability to be, to be humble and to be patient, which is very similar to something we talked about a few weeks ago when we said that the, in the economy of God, this was our, our quote on Facebook for the week, in the economy of God, humility is an invitation to glory. Because in all this, in our, in, our, in our bringing a message to the world, in our being uh, gentle with one another and forgiving and loving with one another, that calls us to be humble, to be patient. All, and, and that can be trying. I mean, all that comes under the pick up your cross category. Right? And so this is, again, it's reaffirming that in the kingdom of heaven, when we pick up our cross, when we suffer for the other, that is glory. When we are non-confrontational, when we are not aggressive, that is glory. When we are publicly Christian at work, bringing the message of salvation, but we're not, we do so in a gentle and loving way, glory. When we are working in the homeless community, bringing the message there, glory. That's the biblical definition of glory. And we would do well to remember that. So, second point. We are united by the glory of God who is working through us. So that brings up a question, though. So we've talked a lot about how God has unified us. He's, 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 he's come into union with us through his spirit so that he is present in us, uh, that he is using us, our clay vessels, as the Bible says, as the way of bringing his word and message to the world. And so the big question is, how? How does God do that? We need to think about that. How is it possible that a holy God is able to use sinful people to carry his message to the world? And not only that, how does a, how does a perfect and holy God come into union with us without incinerating us because of our sin? And that brings us to the third, third point which is we are united by the glory of God who promises to bring us home. Look at verse uh, 24 through 26. It says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, this is hard to see in the ESV, which is the translation most of you have. But where it says, when Jesus says that I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known to them, 
Really, a, a more wooden literal translation would be, and I will, future tense, make it known to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have made it known to them, and I will make it known to them. The translators here have decided to smooth that out by saying, he's talking about continual revelation. But, but Jesus' work of revelation is not quite done at this point, is it? He's still, this is the Last Supper. And so what he's saying by saying, I will make it known, is he's talking about the one more thing that he's going to do to make the Father's name, i.e. his character, what he's all about, what he's really like, known. And of course, he's speaking about the cross. Because he knows that tomorrow morning, he will be heading up the hill with the cross on his back. He knows that he's about to be arrested, that he's about to be tried illegally, that he's about to be tortured, that he's about to be beaten almost to death. And in that, in that last act of obedience that Jesus performs for us, we see something about the name of God. It's revealed to us that we wouldn't otherwise know. We wouldn't know his mercy for us, his desire to stand in our place and take his justice for us so that we might be able to be with him forever in heaven. And Jesus says, this is important, that the cross is what makes it possible, in verse 26, for God's love to be in us. I will make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What do you, and by in the middle of this prayer by saying, O righteous Father, Jesus is calling attention to the fact that God is righteous in what he is doing, righteous and just to come into union with us. And the reason he is righteous, he is able to be righteous and just in doing that is because of the cross for us. We say the same thing every week in our confession of sin. We say, We call upon you to remember your promise to us by the blood of Christ, your faithful and just or righteous, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason how God can remain just and righteous and yet also forgive us our sins is through the cross, what Jesus has done for us. That is the love of God. But there's something more I want to point out before we end. Jesus says in verse 23 that through the cross the world will know that the Father loves us even as he loves Jesus or just as much or in the same way. He says that the Father loves us in the very same way that he loves the Son. And that tells us a few important things. Think about that. The Father loves us every bit as much as he loves Jesus. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about the Father's love for us, like he loves Jesus. But in this very passage, Jesus gives us this concrete example of how the Father loves him. And he says, the Father loved him from before the foundation of the world. Now, think about that. If the Father loves us in exactly the same way that he loves the Son, then that includes us in that, that God also has loved us from before the foundation of the world, from eternity past. 
we quoted, Paul sent me a quote a few weeks ago from a theologian named Voss who said, the love of God for us can never end because it never began. It's the same thing that he's saying here. If God's love for us is from eternity past, then it's been forever. It can't end because it never, ever began. But there's another thing that that hit me as I was reading through this and thinking about it, and that's this, that if God loves us as much as he loves Jesus, that that means that there's no gradient in God's love for us. Now, tell the truth. How many of you feel like God loves you more when you're obedient? I mean, really. I mean, even though you know, even those who know that that's not right, that's how you feel. I know that's how you feel. Because I know, I am educated, (laughs) I know that's wrong, right? I got two theological degrees that tell me God's love for you does not change. And yet still, I have a bad week, God has has loved me. God loves me some more than he loves me. Well, that's probably true, rightly so, if his love were, you know, but... But listen to that. What does that mean? What that means is that there is no gradient in God's love for us. If he loves us the same way he loves Jesus, that means he loves us all the time. There, this one commentator said, there is only one love of God. If he loves us, he loves us completely. And he loves us in a way that is not affected by how we do or how we don't do or having a good week or having a bad week. His love for us is based on who he is, that he is gracious, he is loving, that he sent his son to be the propitiated, to to cleanse us from our sins. And if all this is true, and it is, if God's love is secured for us from eternity past, that means that we are guaranteed to be with him in eternity to come. And that is exact, that is the last thing that Jesus asks for in this prayer. Did you, did you, did you notice that? If this is Jesus' last will and testament, his very last request to the Father would be, was that we would be with him where he is so that we might see his glory. He says, I desire... The word means I will. It's the will of the Son asking the Father to to grant this request. And we know that the Father and the Son, their wills are complete and unison. And so at the very end, the divine Son spoke this out loud to his disciples so that it would be recorded by the Holy Spirit, so that it would have, so we would have this for generation after generation. We would read through this prayer of Jesus to the Father and we would come across this shocking section where, where, where it's like a video will in Last Testament where Jesus talks to us directly and says, you, for all who have believed in their word, Bible, that's their word. The apostolic word is captured in the text. For all who would believe in their word, I wish, I will, the divine will is that we would be with Jesus in heaven. Now, you think anything is going to stand in between that? You think you can mess that up? 
We can't mess that up. So in conclusion, let's think about this. In conclusion, let us work towards unity in the church. But let's not be too sad about the divisions caused by the devil. It's going to happen. What's more important is that we focus on being gracious with each other, loving one another, especially being patient with people who may have different theological beliefs than we do, uh, and loving them. Uh, Being conscious of having our unity in the spirit, unity in doctrine, unity in our mission. And then when we do all that, we can look forward together uh, to the time when these divisions will be gone and we will be together with the Lord forever. No divisions, no denominations in heaven. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and for how it encourages us. Lord, it is true that we are sinful uh, and that we have shattered your church in some ways through our sin and through our obstinacy and our pride, our, want, our desire to be unique, our desire to be famous. In a million ways, we have split your church. And Lord, we pray your forgiveness on that. We pray that you would heal it as much as it is in your providence and goodwill to heal us, Lord. Help us to be uh, working towards that end. We pray that you would work through us, Lord, to bring the message of the gospel in the mission that you have given us to the earth and that we would love people that you send us to. Uh, And Lord, we pray and we thank you that you in your word are so clear about your intentions for us. Lord, once we wrap our minds around the reality, once we admit the reality that we see in the Bible that salvation is of the Lord, that it is from you to us, that it is an expression of your love to us, that you have chosen us from before the foundation of the world, uh, Lord, we'd see it popping up everywhere in the text. So we thank you for that assurance, Lord. And we pray that you would let us use that as a way to encourage us to spend our time here wisely, not seeking after all the little things on earth and all the little trinkets that the devil offers us, but to truly immerse ourselves in your word and in this mission and to love each other and to bring thousands of people into salvation, Lord, through the power of your spirit. That's what we pray. We ask from you big things. We expect big things, Lord. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.